Summertime and the living is It's summer. Time to travel to a beautiful location, relax, and enjoy some music. Which apparently is what all of the classical musicians do, because we can't find any to do classical classroom episodes in town. So, we headed to the hills. And lo, we discovered there are these magical musical oases, oasises, whatever, called classical music festivals. Every summer, students, performers, and orchestras spend their supposed time off making yet more music. Each year, a classical classroom is going to highlight a different festival. This year, we traveled to sunny Santa Barbara, California to the Music Academy of the West. So chill out, hang tin, insert other surfer phrases, and enjoy this classical classroom summer music festival series. Hey everybody, I'm Daisha Clay. Welcome to the fourth installment in our Summer Music Festival series, Music Academy of the West Edition. In this episode, you'll be hearing my chat with Cynthia Phelps, principal violist of the New York Philharmonic. Uh, she has done a short residency with the Music Academy this summer. But first, let's hear a brief overview of what this festival is from one of our series spirit guides, Music Academy of the West President and CEO, Scott Reed. So the Music Academy is an eight-week summer program. We go from June to uh, the beginning of August, and we really cater to the world's greatest young musician. Average age is about 23. We bring in 140 fellows. We call our, our uh, students fellows because they're all on full scholarship at the Academy, which makes our program very competitive. And uh, what we do is we recruit the the, the most talented roster of faculty and guest artists to work with these fellows. So it's really the bringing together of uh, the greatest young musicians with the greatest seasoned musicians. So uh, they can work together, they can learn from one another, and uh, we can really prepare these young musicians for sustainable, vibrant careers in music. Thank you, Scott. Now on with the show. Today, as I mentioned, my guest is Cynthia Phelps. Cynthia is a New York Philharmonic principal violist. In addition to playing with orchestras nationally and internationally, she's also played with chamber orchestras like the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center and has toured with string quartets like the Brentano. She's a Grammy-nominated recording artist, and this summer she's been in residence at the Music Academy of the West. Cynthia Phelps, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you. So so to, to prepare for this interview... I studied up on viola and violist jokes. Uh-oh. And I, I know, like, I, this is a phenomenon I'm not sure that some of our listeners are, are aware of. Apparently, if you go online and you look up classical music memes of any sort, all of these incredibly cruel viola jokes come it's up. It's true. So, um, it's true. I'll just give a, yeah, I'll just give a, um, a quick sample of one of these jokes. So, uh, so, uh, Cynthia, how, how do you get two violists to play in tune with each other? <laughs> you know, I don't know that one. I don't pay attention to viola jokes, and I'm rather, this is I'm, good. I'm rather glad to hear that you're not sure it's a phenomenon that your listeners are familiar with, because that means they're yeah. dying out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the punchline is you, you ask one of the violists to leave. This is, this is how you get them to play in tune with each other. So yes. anyway, listeners, this is, 
this is um, this is how we welcome guests to the classical <laughs> classroom. We insult them from the outside. Real pleasure to be here, Desha. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, so okay. So, as a violist and, and a viola expert, I have to ask you: wh- Why does everyone make fun of the viola? Like, I've I've wondered this for a long time. Well, the viola is an unusual size for an instrument that you hold under your chin. It's it's bigger than a violin. The intervals are bigger. The timbre is sort of in that middle range, so it doesn't really have the brilliance of a violin nor the depth of a cello. It's a true middle voice. And there there have not been a lot of pioneers for the viola. Some of our heroes, of course, would be uh, William Primrose, who was an international soloist around the 30s, 40s, 50s. I was very lucky to be able to study with him the last year that he was alive. Mm-hmm. Paul Hindemith, the composer, was a violist as well. But it's an instrument mm-hmm. that's not been showcased as a solo instrument, uh, in part because there hasn't been a lot of repertoire thrown our way. Yes. So over the huh. years, the lore is that if a violinist can't make it on the violin, they just switch to the viola because the repertoire <laughs> simply is not as demanding as the violin repertoire. So oh, there are a lot okay. of... Uh, violists around that get the the bum rap of being kind of lazy and not good enough to be a violinist, and that's kind of where ah, it came from. I see. <laughs> okay, okay, I see. So, so it's not your fault. It's just just that uh, it's an instrument for for which not a lot has been composed, or at least not as much as as the the uh, repertoire for violin, violin or cello. Um, yeah, I mean, cello doesn't or, have yeah. a huge allotment of solo music yeah. either, but certainly more than than violists do. So we've done um, episodes of the show on just specific instruments, and I realized before we started talking today that we've never actually done one on the viola. Like we've talked to violists, mm. but um, we've never we've never really talked about this instrument at all. So um, so first, I'd love to just have an overview. Can you tell me about? I mean, you just kind of talked about what makes it unique as far as its voice and its size. Yes. Where did this instrument come from? Did it did it evolve from the same time and place as the violin and the cello? How did that No, come I mean it evolved from uh, the viola da gamba in as a baroque instrument which was held between the knees and bowed like a cello, held like a cello. It's interesting because the viola that I play on which is owned by the New York Philharmonic is a very early example of the evolved instrument to being held underneath the chin. It's a Gaspar de Salo. Mm. The date is somewhere between 1560 and 1580, so quite old. That's really when the first modern-day violas were crafted. Mm. And, uh, you know, you can imagine. So so, uh, a viola de gamba wasn't really a solo instrument either. I mean, it it took part in Renaissance music and would somehow be a supportive line more than anything. And today's viola, mm-hmm. well, still very much has the same role as a supportive line. Uh, we sit between um, the violin and the cello timbrely, and we often have the rhythmic structure left up to us, mm. or some key harmonic changes will be our role to play. That is in the orchestral repertoire, often in the string quartet repertoire, which is our richest body of repertoire. Um, so it's it's an ensemble instrument, um, much like the alto voice in a in a chorus. 
Would you? Would it be accurate to say that the viola is sort of like the rhythm guitar in a rock band? Not quite, but we. That's the <laughs> interesting thing about the viola is that it often plays that role. It can play a variety of roles, and understanding that role, embracing it, and capitalizing on it is something that makes today's violas very successful. Uh, it's it's important mm-hmm. that they are prepared to take any competition, take any audition be in a string quartet, some kind of smaller ensemble, be able to stand up and play a recital, because it's an instrument that is so beautiful. I can't tell you how gratifying it is to play a recital and then have people come up and say, the viol is such a beautiful instrument. I'd much rather go to a viol recital than a violin <laughs> recital. <laughs> and I, I, it has that capability. It's such a, such a beautiful color. It has such depth and gorgeous mellow, rich, velvety timbres uh, that I think that it's often overlooked because you don't really notice it unless it something goes bad, mm. <laughs> something goes wrong. Well, <laughs> well, if I oh, I see, and this is this is why the jokes yes. because okay, okay. Well, um, so uh, before we go on, because you've been talking so much about the sound, I'd love to hear. Um, the sound. Is, is there a piece that, that we can listen to that, yes, that is a good example? Absolutely. I think that Berlioz's Herald in Italy, which was crafted as a viola concerto, would be a, a great introduction. It, it starts with a very slow, moving, melodic figure, then develops. So if you would want to play the opening of Herald in Italy, when the viola comes in, mm-hmm. I think that would give a good idea of the color of the instrument. Okay. Here we go. Perfectly lovely sound, and Thank you. this is you playing with the New York Philharmonic. Yes. So what I'm what I'm noticing about this sound, though, just generally, is that it's got uh, I'm not sure what it is, but like it's definitely a deeper sound. Yes. But I hear it's deeper. I will say that um, as far as instruments, actual violas go, instruments, there's a huge range of color amongst the instruments, even more so than with cellos and violins, because the size varies quite a bit. Mm. And the smaller violas don't have quite the the carrying power, um, or maybe even the overtones, depending on how fine an instrument it is. But there is a huge variation in what a viola sounds like. Often Mm. I'll hear a violist play and they'll sound almost like a cello, but not quite. That's the thing. It's that in-between instrument. And I think it's got its own incredible beauty that people listen to and say, wait, that's not a cello and that's not a violin, but it sounds like both (gasps) at different times. Yeah. Thank you. 
to to this instrument? I mean, you know, you've discussed how there's not a, a big body of work to choose from. I'll bit, tell you what drew yeah. me. What was it? I grew up in a family of with four sisters, five girls, and we all play instruments. We're all professional musicians today, and I was the fourth. And I was given a violin, like my older sister, mm -hmm. and there's already a cellist and a pianist. And I took up the violin, and I did not like that violin, but I kept practicing and playing. And my little sister came along, and she played the violin too. And I finally said, "Can I just, can I just play the cello instead? I like that sound better." And my mother said, "Why don't you try a viola, and we'll see." how you do with that. And so I was given a viola when I was about 10. And she said, just keep playing the violin so you can sort of build up your muscle um, memory in your fingers and, you know, develop a technique. And the minute I had that viola and I had that C string instead of the E string, mm -hmm. the E string is the highest string on the violin. The C string is the lowest string on the viola. And it is exa the exact same strings as a cello, but an octave higher. Huh. And I was so happy. I just loved the sound under my ear. You know, everyone's sense of sound comes from inside their head. And it was an instrument that I could really work with and mm -hmm. develop the sound. And I went back to my junior high orchestra in the viola section this time. And the conductor looked at me and said, wow, have you been practicing all summer? <laughs> because it was really something that, that turned me on. I really loved the, the sound quality. Yeah, you found your thing. Mm, I did. Yeah. You brought up the orchestra. I kind of have a sense of, of how many violins are in an orchestra. How many violas are in a typical orchestra? There are six stands, 12, okay. 12 players. Okay, got it. So we should hear some more music. Can you give us another example of, of a uh, composer who's, who's sure, done good sure. work for the Absolutely. viola? Okay. You bet. Um, Mozart actually played the viola. Never heard and of it. he wrote... <laughs> Some of the most beautiful uh, quintets are by Mozart, two viola quintets, okay. really outstanding works. And he also wrote uh, two duets for violin and viola. And um, you can get an idea of the difference between the, the two instruments if you play maybe part of his uh, G major uh, duet. Okay. So talk a little bit about what's going on in this piece. Well, as you can hear, it's a dialogue. Mm -hmm. And you can see that the viola does indeed play a supportive role, but you can hear also the tune. Here's the secondary melody coming. The violin will have it. Mm -hmm. And then the viola has it coming up right here. So when it's paired with the violin, it's it's being asked to have the bass and the rhythm and trade the, the melody back and forth. And that's what's uh -huh. going on in this piece. Mm -hmm. 
So I feel like we're getting a, a little bit of a sense of the different roles that the viola can play. We've heard it. Well, as... there it is. There it is in a in a, in a little a little baby chamber um, setting. Now a larger yeah. chamber would be something like the Glazunov String Quartet, for instance, which is for two violins, two cellos, and viola. However, Glazunov. Um, who was a big champion of all, all different instruments. He wrote some a beautiful saxophone concerto. I mean, he wrote for many different instruments, partly because he um, was an alcoholic and was always running out of money. So he took whatever commissions he could get. <laughs> I don't know who commissioned this uh, viola, or ch- rather cello quintet, um, but it's, it's quite beautiful. And it starts out with a big viola solo in the very beginning. So you can see there that the, that initial first theme is introduced by the viola, the middle voice in this group where you have two violins and two cellos. And I thought it was very smart of Glazunov because he took the same melodic fragments, gave them to the cellos, they worked their way up to the fiddles, and then he's able to actually start developing that first theme before it then goes on to the second theme. So you can see the, the viola often plays a very pivotal role, really pivotal, in changing the harmonic development. Now here's the Uh second theme, again in the viola. Now goes to the violin, which which increases the tension because it's a higher instrument. Uh like an instrument that bridges transitions. It can be used that way, yes. And you know, the thing is, many people don't really know what the viola does. Violas themselves Mm -hmm. don't even realize the important role that they have. I think a violist in a string quartet would certainly know because that's a a very, very singular role, very important role. Um, But in an orchestra, sometimes you think, well, I'm just playing the this rhythmic stuff, the offbeats or whatever. And actually, I mean, I tell my students all the time, when you were sitting there playing the offbeats, you have to be giving the tunes something to get their energy from, or you have to be able to underpin the crux of the phrasing. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you move with the phrases, and you know, often it can, it can just be sort of grunt work if you don't love it or if you don't love music or if you're not just completely engaged in music all the time but if you are the role becomes very interesting very varied and uh very rewarding you have to be very sounds like you have to be very adaptable and you have to be adaptable i told you i was a fourth out of five violists are often the the uh, peacemakers in any (laughs) in any situation and you have to deal with big egos and you know it's a very supportive role and when you do step out of that supportive role you have to be completely excellent it's not the easiest instrument but 
but I think that it's really come into its own. And I really hope many of your listening audience don't know viola jokes because that would make me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so sp- speaking of of like you're you are the principal violist in the New York Philharmonic, and so yes. you're essentially the leader of this instrument that often in orchestral pieces is providing support. So it's like you you are a leader for people who are sometimes not leading the music. What is that exactly. like? How, how is it to be in that role for you in, in this orchestra? It's always, it's always different. You know, when one plays a piece of music, hopefully one is always engaged in mm-hmm. everything that goes on. So if we're listening to the tune in the bassoon or in the first horn or accompanying a cello solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's You're always engaged. One is always engaged, aware of when they need to step out of what they're doing and have more of a profile. Mm-hmm. And that's often not clear at all. Yeah. You know, you have to figure out what's going on in the music. Oh, this is important. I need to be able to be there for this person or I need to take charge myself right yeah. now. And uh, it's a path that's not easily negotiated and not always clear. I think for violists, more than any instrument, uh, certainly more than any other string instrument, if you're playing a Haydn symphony, you know, it's really a lot of rhythmic underpinning. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're playing uh, a Beethoven symphony, there will be a point where there's a fugue, perhaps, and you have to really step up to the plate and, and... Add your voice when mm-hmm. it's the appropriate time in a very strong way, and then completely back away when the next fugal entrance comes in. That kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, it's like it's like it sounds like you're sort of learning how to be be present, pro- provide this very important role, but also sort of keep in perspective that you are not a special snowflake. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's special. Everyone's a special snowflake. Yeah. At different times when it's appropriate. Yeah. It's it, in in a large way. I mean, all music is pretty much boils down to being like chamber music mm-hmm. because you always have to listen to everything that's going on. Yeah. And unless you're standing in front of the orchestra as a concerto soloist playing, you know, the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto or whatever, it's it's never just about you. Um, yeah. Even then it's not. But um, a solo mentality is... An animal of its own. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's um let's talk in the in the time that we have left about your work at the Music Academy of the West. I know that you're doing a three week residency, and um, right. we've talked to Matthew O'Coin, who is also doing a residency there. But he was talking to us about that from a composer's perspective. What does a residency mean for a musician? How do you spend your time there? Well, I work closely with the students, um, and I give master classes, and I perform on the chamber music series. So what I like about my role there is the ability to really connect with students in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I'm home in New York with my students at Juilliard, we have the whole year. We can talk about the recitals that they're planning, the kinds of chamber music groups they're in, all of that. This is a very condensed amount of time to make a difference to somebody that I may not see again. And so my role as a teacher in these summer weeks is to identify problems that I see are keeping these students from reaching their best potential. And Mm. then I 
try and outline what they should focus on and what they need to take back to their teachers. At the same time, identifying repertoire that would be helpful for, or etudes that would be helpful to work on certain problem areas in their playing that's holding them back. Mm. So it's a challenge because it's so condensed, and I'm only here for those three weeks. Yeah. And in fact, this summer, I gave 22 lessons in about eight days because <laughs> that was all I had. But it was great. I got to meet with each student twice, sort of... Um, assess what needed to be done, what their work was over the next few weeks. And of course, um, I I also teach with Richard O'Neill, who is there in the weeks that I'm not there, and Karen Dreyfus, two other very fine violists on the faculty. So we, we discuss each student mm -hmm. and what their strengths and weaknesses are and what they need to work on. I have to say it was very gratifying this year to come back from different tours and performances that I was doing in between and see such growth in these yeah. kids. So, And part of my role, too, is to um, help choose the applicants. Hmm. So it's it's really gratifying to be able to know that I had some faith in these 11 fellows and that indeed they really came through with some good hard work and, and much progress. Well, and I should remind listeners that the fellow is is what the Music Academy of the West calls their students because they're all there on fellowships. Um, so I, I'm curious, right. uh, since you're you're there, you're you're a um, an expert in the viola, you're, you're a professional in your field. I mean, you you basically are performing with, the, you know, the most amazing orchestra in the nation, maybe the world. I don't know, but but the, but so you are going there and you're sort of preaching the gospel of the viola to to these fellows. And how is that? Are you infusing them with with new energy? Are you seeing them take that energy and sort of further the cause of this this instrument? What are you seeing come out of that? You know, it's really all about connecting with any individual student and figuring out who is this person and wh why are they in music? Mm -hmm. What do they want to do with this? Uh, the the vehicle, of course, is the viola, but more than anything, it's the music. How do you connect? To, how does music work for you? How do you find yourself connected to this world? What do you want to do with it? What do you want to do with this instrument in this world? And it's sort of taking on the responsibility of... You know, a, a, this age group is just so special. They're 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 still being formed. They're still trying to figure out where they fit into the world and where their role is. One of my students said to me, "I, I said, how how has your summer been going?" And she said, "I've gained a lot of confidence. I mm -hmm. used to have issues with feeling significant, and that's changed this summer. Mm -hmm. And hearing that is just an amazing thing to yeah, hear. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Seeing these students, these fellows, become self confident and feel that they really have something to offer is mm -hmm. is what we we do as teachers that's what you do yeah. so it's a great form it's really i had it when i was a student there i had many many opportunities and it's just really a thrill to be able to be back and be on the other end so how do you get in this residency? Because I know that, that, that when I was talking to Matthew O'Coin, he was talking about how it was a time that he was able to utilize to create uh, new work and to sort of sit with that work with, you know, people who were playing it and in a, in a way that, that just kind of doing work on your own didn't allow him. So do you, as as a viola teacher there, like, are you... Are, do you get any me time as a musician? Do you do you also get to spend some time developing your own? I don't know, like spending time with your instrument. How does that work for you? 
Well, I, I think that um, teaching is a beautiful thing because you're constantly analyzing the way people play their instrument and what they bring to it musically. So I learn from my students as well, of course. But I'm also at the academy not just to teach, but to perform. And I fill up the rest of the weeks that I'm not there performing. So okay. my me time is preparing for my own performances, of gotcha. course. But it's it's always a challenge. If I'm giving a master class, I need to be familiar with what the students are playing. I can't just pick up my instrument and not demonstrate unless I'm prepared to do so and, and can show mm -hmm. something that the students can hear. You know, I think teaching is always a combination of using your words, using your ears, but also demonstrating when, when one needs to because people learn at different rates and in different ways, and you never know what's going to speak to your student. So uh, it's important that I stay at the top of my game, and it affords me that opportunity and that challenge to be involved in that way. So I have a couple more questions for you, and then I'm hoping that you can take us out on a piece of music. But I'd like to know, I'm sure that you have been to many music festivals, as I found that most of the classical musicians I've talked to have. What makes the Music Academy of the West experience unique to you among the other festivals? It's the only festival in which I teach. The other festivals are simply um, all performance-based, unless oh, okay. there's a, a quartet that I might be coaching. But um, this, it's the only one where I, where I actually have private pupils, so it's quite different. Hmm. Um, and it's a, a wonderful uh, faculty, so it's great to be able to perform with other teachers who have a performance career but also teach. Uh, many of the festivals where I play right now are mainly performers, so it's just a little little bit different in that yeah, way. Yeah. And and what are you doing for fun while you're there? This is I've this is this is one of my favorite questions about music Music Academy of the West people is um, the variety of answers to this particular question. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, and, and I have to say that I grew up out in Southern California. My mother lives about 20 minutes south of the academy. Mm -hmm. So I have, as I mentioned before, a very big family. So it's always wonderful to, for me to be here because I'm very close to all of my sisters that are still here in Southern oh. California. I'm very outdoors oriented. I like to swim in the ocean. I spent a long time running and playing tennis. I don't can't do either one of those sports anymore, <laughs> but I fill it up with swimming and, and I just love to be outdoors. So this is really my home territory and it's a thrill to be back. That's kind of great. You've got your peeps there. You've got the outdoors. That sounds That's right. Sounds like a really good time in addition to all of the this oceans hard and work the mountains. Well, can you take us out on a on a piece of music, another good example of of the viola? Absolutely. Um, there's a beautiful viola solo in a piece by uh, Vaughn Williams. A lot of beautiful, beautiful music were, was written from, from British composers. A lot of it was for William Primrose, who was a Scottish, actually. But uh, he did a lot of premieres of pieces that were written by British composers. This was not written for him, but it's a beautiful, beautiful melody. It's called a theme and variations on, uh, variations on a theme by Thomas Tallis, and the viola gets the actual theme. Cool.
And again, preparing for the violin entrance. So the viola gets it first, and mm-hmm. then the composer will build tension or change the color or change the mood by having the violin then take the, the melodic fragment. It's like the viola has warmed up the crowd. Exactly. And, yeah. And now they're in duet, as you can see. Yeah. Also, there's another piece of music you might want to play, which shows the viola in a very different light. Um, it's a solo piece. It's one I include a lot on uh, my recitals. Oh, yeah. I've recorded it. It's a piece by George Inesco, the Romanian composer. It's called Concert Piece. Okay. And it gives sort of the idea of the virtuosity of the viola as well. Nice. It's just the mellow... Lovely. It is. It it heats up. (laughs) Oh, it heats up. Oh, here we go. That's great. That's a really different, different uh, example of what Very the instrument example. can do. And well, if you don't mind, I just would love to um, say one more thing. Oh yeah, please do. Because we have so little repertoire. I've been very, very lucky in that the New York Philharmonic commissioned a composer for me to write a viola concerto, which I'll be premiering in November with the New York Philharmonic. A young woman great. named Julia Adolph. She's a, a doctoral student at the U- University of Southern California. And the piece is terrific. I gave a, a warm-up debut of it with the Eastern Music Festival. Um, Jerry Schwartz was conducting just a couple of weeks ago. And it's a terrific piece. So I'm very thrilled to have a vehicle that I can pass on to, you know, the next generation of violists. It's, it's really wow. thrilling. So That's super cool. I'm, qu- I'm quite happy about that. Very cool. Well, we look forward to hearing that. And uh, Cynthia, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. Of course. This has been awesome. I appreciate you teaching me about this this instrument that I'd only kind of heard about before. Well, now you know. Now I know. And now I know what the (laughs) jokes jokes. are about. No more jokes, people. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Cynthia Phelps. It has been awesome to talk to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, everyone. That's it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org slash classroom. Find our social media links there. Pick your poison. Email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Subscribe to us, rate us, review us on iTunes, because every time you do, an angel gets its wings. 
Thanks today to audio producer Todd Tubit Hulslander for twiddling knobs. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing ponyboy Curtis eyes. Thanks to Catherine Barnes over at KCRW for her help with this episode. She's definitely a greaser, not a soch. Thanks to Cynthia Phelps for being here today. Stay gold, Cynthia. Thanks to the good people at the Music Academy of the West, especially to Kate Obriot, who we appreciate a lot. Thanks also to Cynthia's manager, Elizabeth Dworkin, and to Pamela Walsh at the New York Philharmonic for their help with this episode. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.